1: Hello. Welcome to the British Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Leah Parody, a professor of history at Slippery Rock University and co-host of Lies Agreed Upon, a podcast about how Hollywood uses history to talk about today, which is a partner podcast of the New Books Network and also available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Today, I'll be speaking to Jessica Clark, an associate professor of history at Brock University. She's written The Business of Beauty Gender and the Body in Modern London, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2020. In it, Dr. Clark takes the reader on a tour through the shifting commercial and cultural landscape of London in the second half of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th. The business of beautification aimed at both men and women and conducted by both men and women was influenced by and reflective of shifting attitudes towards women in public spaces, the influx and success of immigrants in the nation's capital, the development of wholesale production processes and the standardization of commodities, and the cultural competition between European nations that accompanied the growing political and military competition at the fin de siècle, among many other things. In other words, Jessica Clark shows us that the be- business of beauty intersects with an amazing array of historical subjects. Welcome to the New Books Network, Jessica.
2: Hi, Leah. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, as I just said, your book, The Business of Beauty, is a fascinating examination of the intersection of many fields of study, business history, social geography, consumer culture, and gender history, among others. What piqued your interest in this particular subject to begin with? Well,
2: the project actually stretches all the way back to my undergraduate days um, when I was interested in beauty culture more generally in 19th century Britain. So I started working with periodicals targeted at white middle-class women. Um, Amongst scholars at the time, it was widely accepted that women in this period did not pursue what was considered artificial beauty. There was the dominant notion that naturalness was the norm in sort of replicating the fashion of Victoria the First, et cetera. Um, And so there was no sense that women were um, uh, buying commercial beauty goods, certainly, because there was such an emphasis on this natural look. The periodicals themselves revealed some discussion of beauty practices and goods amongst um, women and and writers in in the magazines. But what I found more surprising was that there was quite a lot of evidence in these periodicals of beauty firms advertising their services. So although I was trained as a social and cultural historian of gender and urban space, this sent me down this kind of unexpected path of trying to locate and identify beauty businesses and beauty business people. It was clear that I wouldn't be able to track consumers since no one wanted to admit the fact that they were using these goods, especially in writing, uh, especially for the historical record. So the question became, who provided beauty goods and services in a moment when these practices were so widely criticized across so many different venues? So over time and research, I realized that there was, in fact, a vibrant beauty trade happening across London, featuring, as you said, both women and men. And these categories included hairdressers, barbers, perfumers, wig makers. Um, There were special categories like, quote unquote, complexion specialists or beauty culturalists. And by the end of the 19th century, there were manicurists um, and even examples after 1880 of electrolysis operators, which really surprised me. I certainly would not be interested in electrolysis in the 1880s.
1: (laughs) No, I think that seems like a dangerous proposition.
2: (laughs) They had very big batteries, to say the least. (laughs) So some of these traders left very few historical records Um, while others, as I chart in the book, became um, public figures for good and bad reasons, with some even trading on their notoriety to generate business. Um, So at the end of the day, again, I was surprised to find a number of women and men making their livings off of this business, all while navigating a culture that really quite voraciously criticized artificial beauty. Um, And so their ubiquity suggests that even though we have limited evidence of consumption or descriptions of consumption, um, that many men and women who are claiming that their looks were natural were in fact soliciting these businesses.
1: Well, that actually brings me to a question I, I wanted to ask, which was that I was really intrigued by the tension between this British ideal of natural beauty And the reality that, you know, whether the purveyor is the more downscale, you know, Madame Rochelle or Madame Rachel, I'm not sure (laughs) if she would maybe pretend to have been a bit more French, or the renowned uh, Eugene Rimmel, ultimately, this was a business trying to sell products that altered or concealed. Can you uh, speak a bit more about that, that fundamental tension?
2: Yeah, this is a really powerful dynamic that I argue is at the heart of British beauty businesses throughout the 19th and into the early 20th centuries. Um, you know, there were these very specific cultural values regulating beauty practices in this period. Um, so I use words like um, negation, discretion, concealment. You know, those were the the kind of mobilizing forces behind behind the trade. Um, This was the defining attitude for so many people in this period. And it it was even a point of national pride in the ways that, you know, critics and commentators compared, quote unquote, natural beauty, British beauty, to, um, say, the alleged artificiality of the French. Um, So it was really essential for many people to maintain the illusion of these values. But of course, you know, this natural look had really specific qualities that, and, I mean, natural is always in quotation marks. <laughs> but this natural look had really specific qualities that many men and women simply you know, didn't meet. So um, that was fairness of complexion, a complexion um, or more explicitly, whiteness. Um, no blemishes, no wrinkles, no wayward hairs. Um, and also... Um, a countenance that was free from any scarring or signs of what people considered to be defects at the time. Um, So despite or or perhaps because of these really powerful messages privileging alleged naturalness, there was all of this consumer demand for goods that would help people achieve a non-look, if you would. So this, in turn, defined the Beauty business operations—they had to operate with discretion, and discretion again is the defining element of the trade. So, the most successful traders, um, like Eugene Rommel, as you mentioned, did so by emphasizing respectability and professionalism. He aligned himself with professional trades at the time—men of science, uh, chemists, and druggists. You know, he approached it from that perspective, where this was a scientific art. He was also very careful about the types of goods that he offered. So um, he had perfumery, of course, and he might offer face washes. But the most kind of dramatic intervention that he provided were eyebrow pencils. Um, There is a chance, I suspect, that once you got into the shop itself, there might be more options. But in terms of the actual advertising, that was the extent to which he he would go. On the other hand, more notorious traders, as you mentioned, Madame Rachel or Madame Rochelle, I'm sure she used both at various times, (laughs) you know, um, she would actually exploit these conditions of discretion. She would exploit consumers' fears of being caught out and discovered. Um, And in her specific case, you know, she would blackmail and publicly humiliate um, elite female customers who, oftentimes refused to pay up, you know, refused to meet her kind of exorbitant financial demands. Um, And so Madame Rachel has justifiably been subject to a lot of study, a lot of scholarly study. But within the book itself, I situate her as part of a spectrum of traders, where she is obviously at the more extreme, notorious, sensational end. Um, But at the same time, in terms of beauty consumption, she really signaled people's worst nightmares about what could happen if these discrete interventions were exposed to the public eye. So she served an important function in um, both scaring consumers and also um, regulating the ways that other more mainstream beauty providers did their business. And that was to be incredibly discreet, um, incredibly low key um, and you know, sometimes to the point of making it really difficult to find them in the historical record.
1: Yes, it seemed like it was uh, uh, quite a challenge. As a, a historian reading uh, a, another historian's work, of course, we always are thinking about the sources and always thinking about the processes of of finding those sources. And that was something that definitely came up in my mind repeatedly was uh, the challenge of locating these sources and also um, how um uh, uh, creative, you were in uh, in finding them. I, if you wouldn't mind for a second, maybe you could speak a little bit to to what some of your sources were and how you went about locating them.
2: As you mentioned, it was very much um, it was very much a piecemeal process where there wasn't a single repository that I could really turn to, so much as the building. Over a number of years of so many smaller pieces of evidence, that it became very clear to me that there was something bigger going on. Which, of course, is a relief when you're when you're pursuing these things in the archives. Um, So, the um, kind of expanse of the book in terms of the different approaches is in part a reflection of the different types of sources. So, I have business sources, um, and I'm really indebted to Um, feminist business scholars and and historians of women in business for the ways that they read these sources. So census records, um, business directories, and, and really trying to, you know, um, build out these um, sources. So if you have a single line of a single trader in a business directory, then you can use the census and other sources to try to figure out their family situation, their neighborhood, their proximity to others. And that's of course where geography comes into play in the context of London, thinking about the spatialization of these businesses. And then there were a few instances where I, you know, I had access to these really remarkable wonderful sources that were just so illuminating. So, for example, one of the chapters, um, it analyzes the life of Jeanette um, Skelly Pomeroy, who is one of the leading beauty providers in the Fendi Siecle in London. She's an American um, transport, and she brings new ideas about beauty to London. But she was actually the daughter of um, Methodist missionaries from Ohio. So, You know, some random Google searches, as we all do when we're researching topics, Um, some random Google searches of her name revealed that uh, a Methodist university in Ohio had her parents' letters, correspondence. And so I contacted the archivist and she said, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, there is the one daughter that writes about all these really fashionable things in London. And, you know, like what a breakthrough. So I was in Ohio reading these letters, um, these very intimate letters in which, um, I had had the advertisements proclaiming, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, front stage appearance of Mrs. Pomeroy as this refined and dedicated woman who provided these services. And then I had these backstage letters in Ohio, just describing how much she hated the work and she despised the clients. And at one point she said she found a gold mine in British women's pockets, Um, so all this is to say is that, you know, I had, I was working with a range of different sources and I was so grateful whenever I could find another element to this puzzle.
1: That's amazing. And finding those, I I mean, those moments when we find those, uh, those archives, those little connections are, are always just an absolute joy. Yeah. (laughs) And now you mentioned, uh the geography of London. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this was an, another aspect of your book that was really so wonderful because uh I'm a real sucker for anything that that really locates us in its space and sort of takes us through its its space. And so um uh, you know, it's really a, London is a major character in your book and you decode the meaning of location for women and for men uh, at different levels of respectability and success can you Can you explain a few of the ways that the geography of London was understood and then also deployed in the beauty trade in this period?
2: Thank you for drawing that out um yeah. London, as you say, is a key character in this study. Um, In large part, because of the sort of ephemeral nature of some of the evidence, I really turned to my training as an urban historian to try to build out this picture and subsequently build out these networks of people who, um, because of the relatively small size of the industry, meant that there was quite a lot of um, linkages between traders and kind of crossing between each other's stories. Um, So thinking about it, geographically and spatially was really helpful in that regard. Um, So the beauty trade mapped onto 19th century London in really interesting ways, both in expected ways and unexpected ways, I'd say. Um, So I wasn't surprised to find that the most successful beauty providers ran pretty elite shops out of the West End. So, you know, the moneyed West End um, so people like hairdresser H.P. Trufit, who Trufit still is in the West End to this day, or um, perfumer Septimus P.S. had these longstanding celebrated shops. But I was surprised to find a number of smaller, humbler shops on side streets throughout the West End, and especially into the more plebeian pockets around Soho. Um, Some of these Soho shops were operated by women which uh, at the mid-centuries, which I um, I found a bit surprising. I wasn't necessarily expecting to find that. So that included women like Amy Lloyd, who lived through a really violent divorce and ended up setting up her own shop. Um, crafting this waterless shaving cream for men that was really widely celebrated and successful. And that's how she kind of financially came out of this divorce. Other Soho shops were run by recent immigrants, um, including the Rimmel family who moved from France in the 1830s. And in doing so launched their son Eugene's transformation into Britain's leading perfumer. So part of his story is his movement out of Petit France in Soho, like the small francophone immigrant community to the strand, which is a bustling thoroughfare in this period of um, commerce and entertainment. And that I argue signals his movement into onto a sort of um, more national stage where he becomes a French arbiter of taste for discreet British consumers. Um, So these smaller Back, music businesses that, as I call them, that are operating uh, somewhat on the peripheries of the main thoroughfares, um, had an important presence. Even though they weren't the leading businesses, they nonetheless created this really intense atmosphere of heightened competition, and um, where the kind of lowliest of trailer traders were still spurring on um, competition with their more elite. Um, rivals in that way, and in part because they were so spatially condensed. Um, but of course, it wasn't just in the West End that people could solicit beauty and grooming services. Um, and so one of the chapters charts the role of hairdressers and barbers who operated all across London and served all classes of men and women. So we spend some time in the East End and South London thinking about the um, ways that Barber shops, in particular, were these hubs of masculine sociability through this period, and they were really, you know, community centers in a lot of way, um, and w- in ways that were actually detrimental to uh, male barbers in this period. And so I talk a bit about the labor conditions that they faced, um, which were quite wretched in many instances, and also the ways that their trade was challenged in the 1860s and 1870s when women hairdressers and barbers were bought in, brought in to replace them because they were cheaper labor. So there's gender dynamics as well as spatial dynamics there. So in that way, as I said, it maps on to London's existing social topographies, um, but it was also telling in the ways that regardless of people's location, they could access these services. And um, once again, I was also surprised by the intermingling of high and low businesses um, and their really close physical proximity. The West End wasn't as elite as they like to present themselves
0: as. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: Yes, I thought that was fascinating as well, and the idea that, in fact, that component of discretion contributes to the ability of these these different, let's say, levels of providers being able to coexist because of that, um, uh, that additional ing- ingredient of the, the, the uh, demand for discretion.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And the fact, as you say, initially, women traders who are on these sort of back musy areas could, as you say, actually benefit from their, you know, their relative undercapitalization. They might have small, humble shops, but they could turn that to their advantage because, of course, as you say, it maximized the discretion uh, for their consumers
1: yeah interesting now um I- I- you spoke uh, uh, a minute ago about um, uh, ramel's uh, uh, Frenchness <laughs> uh, and and one of the other things that that um, is evident in in the book is that the British beauty industry really benefited from London being the metropole of a of a vast empire but that there's also this cachet of access to quote-unquote exotic ingredients and the fame of non-British leaders in the field like Mm -hmm. Rommel or Rubenstein. Um, And yet they could never quite overcome the sense that British beauty products and methods weren't quite as refined as continental ones. And, and so I thought maybe you, you could uh, talk a bit about the the benefits and drawbacks that the British beauty business had in this era of sort of peak empire, mm-hmm. but also national competition.
2: Yeah, that's a, an important question. Um, so the standing of many of the more successful British beauty firms, and especially amongst perfumers, Um, was absolutely indebted to colonialism, so to broader processes of colonization of land and people and resources. And um, specifically British perfumers depended on ingredients like civet and musk, which were extracted from colonized territories, and no doubt via the labor of colonized workers, even though this isn't something that they readily acknowledge in um, the historical record. Um, so that was a defining feature of British perfumery production and something that was touted um, in, in the advertising itself. Like you say, these exoticized ingredients as bringing the quote unquote empire home to British consumers. And, but there was also the centrality of colonial consumption, which was really interesting and important. Um, there's currently been work being done by other scholars um, But it's clear that British perfumers absolutely, especially, depended on colonial consumers to sustain their um, export business um, for reasons, as you say, um, owing to their lack of success on continental markets in in some ways. Um, And yet, despite this dependency, British beauty providers never privileged colonial consumers in advertising or marketing. Um, And in fact, You know, there are a number of examples of denigrating and racist descriptions of colonial consumers coming from 19th century perfumers um, who, you know, not only do they fail to acknowledge the importance of colonial markets, but then would also comment on consumers' alleged quote-unquote savagery or their misuse of beauty goods. So colonized markets were absolutely central to the British beauty industry all while being marginalized via the messaging coming out of these firms.
0: Um,
2: And this, of course, included firms' ongoing privileging of what they called natural beauty, as one that was white and feminized and and English, as they saw it. Um, Instead, you know, advertising and, you know, the company imperatives, the firm imperatives, they always saw their main markets as being their continental competition, and particularly in France. Um, as well as the US in a later period. However, as I mentioned, you know, American and French consumers weren't necessarily interested in this sort of natural British discretion. There were certainly different trends on the continent and in the US, uh, and particularly related to color cosmetics and just more overt adornment. This desire and demand for concealment just simply didn't define their beauty cultures in the same way. And so um, ultimately what it meant was that the British industry suffered significantly and especially as we move into the 20th century when we see the growing expansion of female beauty consumption and the growing expansion of color cosmetics, the British industry are, I would argue, it was in large part like left behind because they were still holding on to these older 19th century vestiges of concealment discretion that just didn't align with trends anymore. And I'd argue, you know, this continues to this day. When you look at some of the key British beauty brands, they um, quite successfully market their kind of bespoke traditional prestige. So I'm thinking of some firms in in St. James, um, you know, like florists, the perfumers, or grossmith. Um, But British goods and perfumery didn't see the gains in the 20th century of places like France and the U.S. They didn't become known for their beauty industry in the ways that France and the U.S. did. And again, it's tied to these enduring 19th century values, I think, around secrecy and discretion that both shaped but subsequently limited the industry itself.
1: Well, this is all just very fascinating. The book was just really interesting and in some ways sort of unexpected. I mean, it was really lovely the way that it intersects with so many fields and really is a great example of of how um, uh, we can take if we take these sort of holistic approaches to things that we really just end up in in areas that we didn't uh, realize that uh, that we would. Um, so thank you very much to for talking with us today. It's been uh, really interesting, and I hope that uh, many more people uh, read your book.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.